From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, she makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. Welcome to a new episode of For What It's Worth. We break down all the personal finance and workplace stories that affect you and your pocketbook. And this week, many of us will have received the so-called grocery rebate from the federal government. Now, if you're someone who receives the HST GST credit, you will automatically be considered for this grocery rebate, which you would have received by Wednesday, July the 5th. Now, It is specific for certain households. 11 million Canadians are going to be receiving this rebate. Uh, You have to have a household income of less than $38,000 or an individual income of less than $32,000 a year. So really targeting individuals who are on in the low in a lower income bracket and those families who really have been struggling to pay for things like groceries grocery costs are still up near double digits almost 10% year over year and if you look at certain products like baked goods some meats uh uh, digestible oils, as a digestible consumable oils, like olive oil, things like this, right? Those are up double digits in the last couple of years. And it's making it very difficult for many families to afford to pay their grocery bill along with all their other bills, be that rent and mortgage and utilities. And if they have any student debt lying around that they're still paying for, anything that they need to uh, address on a monthly basis, it makes it more difficult for them to do that because so much more money is going to for groceries. Now, when this was first announced in the federal budget, which came down uh, in March, uh, it was really doubling of the HST GST credit. So if you already received the GST HST credit, like I said, you would automatically be considered for this. So this is going to double that credit. I have a lot of criticism as to why they're calling this a grocery rebate. They can just simply say we're doubling the GST HST credit in order to make life more affordable for Canadians. And you can use that money for whatever you want, because it's not like the government's going to come and check and say, hey, That money that we gave you, are you spending it on groceries? No, you can pay your bills with it. You can pay down debt with it. You can go spend it at the casino, right? Nobody is checking where this money is going. So my big criticism is why not just call it what it is? Just call it the GST-HST rebate being doubled at a time when many Canadian families are struggling. Those who are struggling the most, those who are in the lowest income will be able to get more money. Uh, in a benefit that is co- that we already have. We're doubling it for the time being to help those individuals out. And the money can be uh, su- substantial, at least at one time. The rebate will be up to $467 for eligible couples with two children, for an example, $234 for single Canadians who don't have children, um, and $225 for seniors. This is just the on average. Um, the most you could get, for an example, according to the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, who is the one that is distributing this credit, uh, if you are a family with four children, you can get up to $628. So that's money that could go towards definitely paying for groceries. Uh, But calling it a grocery rebate, I thought, was um, a little bit gimmicky, right? So I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, you know, we understand that life is expensive. We're giving you this extra money. Maybe you could spend it on groceries. But I think it also sends a signal that it can't be spent on anything else. Because I think if you've got a credit card uh, um, lying around with a balance on it that you haven't been able to pay, 
that money would go much better towards that, right? Pay that debt down and try to manage that credit card debt, which is costing you so much money rather than saying, oh, I've got to spend this money on groceries. Um, This credit uh, will be based on your 2021 tax return. So you may have to make sure you file and are up to date on your taxes. And uh, it, it, it will be based on your financial situation. They're saying in January, 2023. So they're looking at a number of different factors, but basically if you get the GST HST credit, you're automatically going to be uh, getting this grocery rebate as they're calling it. And you will get that up to, depending on your situation, $628 in your pocket. Uh, but really the average they're saying for most is going to be about $467 for couples and less for singles, 234 bucks. If you are single, uh, a little bit less, even if you are a senior and you have to be in that income bracket, making $38,000 or less as a household or $32,000 or less as a individual. We have a fantastic show coming up. After the break, we're going to talk to a parenting expert, how to keep kids busy this summer without going into deep debt. Now, believe it or not, Canadians spend more than $5,500 every summer on summer activities, vacations, entertaining their children, entertaining at home. It's a really expensive time of year. And in fact, it's more expensive than Christmas. The numbers are kind of all over the place as to how much Canadians actually spend at Christmas. But anywhere between $1,500 and $1,800 on Christmas Compare that to $5,500 during the summer. And the problem is, is because every single Saturday is an opportunity to blow your budget. Every Saturday is Christmas during the summer, right? Whereas during the holidays, it's really focused on one maximum two days. So you've got Christmas, maybe Boxing Day, rather, sorry, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and then you've got New Year's Eve. So these are the times where you might spend a little bit more. And there are, of course, events running up to Christmas that cost us money. Uh, But really, it's all based on that one day. It's a shorter is a shorter event, definitely. Whereas summer, I mean, if your kids get out of school in mid-June, you've got two and a half months that you're going to have to entertain your children, whether it be through camps or family vacations or through stuff at home, and everything costs money. So we're going to be talking to a parenting expert about ways we can get back to basics when it comes to entertaining our kids that are going to save us money. Later in the show, Canadians right now are experiencing the biggest wealth transfer in history. There's one report that says, $1 trillion will be transferred from the boomer generation to their children as an inheritance. Some of those assets could include a family cottage. If you're lucky enough to be someone who gets this piece of real estate, what are the financial considerations that you need to think about before you actually take possession of it? We'll be talking to someone about all the things that you need to think about if you inherit a family cottage. When we come back, we're talking to a parenting expert about how we can have fun for free this summer. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed Huck. Summer is an expensive time of year. Reports show we'll spend more during the next two months than we will during the entire Christmas holidays. A survey that was conducted by BMO Bank of Montreal of Canadians' summer spending habits found 28% of us go into debt during the summer. Another 27% of us dip into our savings 
in order to have fun in the summer. And 13% of us just forget all about paying off debt and just enjoy the season instead. So how can we keep some of these costs down, especially when it comes to entertaining our children? By now, we're only about a week or two into summer holidays. I'm sure many of us have already heard the, I'm bored. And sometimes the easiest solution is just to spend some money to keep them entertained. But my next guest says, no, there are better ways that we can do things and not spend a lot of that money. To talk about this and get some tips on how we can keep our spending in check this summer, we are joined by family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Welcome to the program, Allison. So great to be with you. Allison, I wanted to start by asking you, you know, what are some common mistakes that you see, especially parents making when it comes to entertaining their kids during these summer months that cost a lot of money? Well, I I think really that word entertaining our children is the first thing that we have to address, uh, which is the fact that kids really can't be bored, believe it or not. I mean, the boredom is a feeling that is uncomfortable and it's an emotion that pushes us to solve the problem by getting something going on and getting, getting happening. And when parents feel that they need to solve that problem for their kids through entertainment, it means our kids really don't get that opportunity to flex that muscle and come up with something to do on their own with whatever is around them in the moment. So kids have a capacity. It's just underdeveloped because parents somehow feel they have to rescue. And often, to your point of how do we save money, a lot of the ways that parents rescue their kids from boredom is to pay for some novel toy experience, excitement seeking, whatever that comes with the price tag. And sure, it'll get the kids off your back from, you know, not moaning for the whole day, which drives parents crazy. But it does cost us money in the long run that we often can't recover and that puts stress on parents. And it underdevelops our kids to be able to problem solve pushing through boredom and the doldrums. That's the reality of life. So it's kind of got a twofold cost to it. Allison, you've been covering uh, parenting and parenting, even a parent, you've been a counselor, family counselor for many years. Is Are we getting worse when it comes to trying to solve our problems through money when it comes to dealing with our kids? Well, I, I do think that we've gotten worse for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that somehow in our evolution of understanding children, we somehow have a more uh, misunderstanding that children are more fragile and we get very upset ourselves when our kids get emotionally dysregulated. So we don't like them crying. We don't like them protesting. We are, are more worried when our kids are upset. And so that becomes really problematic because parents are just sort of like, just, just make them happy, make them happy. I don't want to, I don't want to break my children. They're fragile. And that's, uh, that's not true. In fact, a lot of what we know about resiliency research is that making our kids endure through hardships is what builds up their character capacity and their resiliency skills. So they're not fragile. And, and so we have to change our thinking about that perspective. And then I think the second thing is that, It's just so easy to be able to turn around and entertain our kids with technology, I'm afraid to say it. Now that we have handheld devices, um, very portable, 24-7, always something entertaining and exciting, 
it's really easy to use technology as a bit of a babysitter. And then parents sort of say, well, look at, they're not bugging us. I know they should probably be playing on a rope swing, but you know what? They're not bugging us. So what if they're playing their 27th game of Animal Crossing or watching the 300th episode on a YouTube (laughs) cycle? Um, At least they're not bugging me. And so I think we've become a little bit lazy in our parenting that we do kind of have this electronic babysitter that does keep our kids very well entertained. Yeah. And it is, you know, now I wish my kids would just watch TV, right? I wish they would just watch a show from beginning to end, like a half an hour show, which back when I was a kid, my parents were always like, get off the TV, stop watching the TV. But now I think back, at least I had, they had my attention for half an hour. Now they watch these short, short videos that I, I, I wonder what it's doing to them, allowing them to watch, um, watch these very, very, you know, small snippets of content that, continuously changes and uh, keeps them sort of engaged on this high level. Um, You know, that of course is free. So, you know, I'm not that I'm promoting people who put their kids in front of uh, a screen all summer long, but there must be ways that we can enjoy summer with our children uh, that is fun, maybe even free or very cost effective. Uh, What would you recommend? So we have to remember, kids do like to have fun and believe it or not, they like intergenerational fun. And we really can go back to some of these basics. And I'm telling you like a personal story just for myself this weekend, I was with um, eight people and we played an old parlor game at my cottage because I grew up in a time where there was no radio, no CB, no Wi-Fi, no nothing. It was basically go out and play with acorns. And so we learned a lot of parlor games. And so here I was with these you know, eight youngsters and I taught them how to play a silly game called Up Jenkins. Well, they were absolutely enthralled with it. We had a wonderful time with it. And so, yes, there's lots of things that you can do that are low tech, free, available, social, intergenerational that's around us all the time. Um, but it does mean that we have to just have a little bit of creativity about finding those things. And one thing is to just check in with your um, local town because every city has a mandate to make sure that there are free accessible resources for families to um, enjoy their city. So that might be free programming at a library, for example. It could be puppet shows all the way through learning a second language. Um, you know, so the libraries I, I find are just a fantastic resource. Asking yourself, is there something as a family that you want to tackle as a project together? So it doesn't necessarily have to be a game. It might be we're going to redo everybody's bedroom or we're going to overhaul the garage or we're going to plant, you know, a, a new vegetable garden in the back and involve your kids in things that are actual uh home projects. They like to be helpful. They like to be uh, meaningful contributors to the family. If you can keep the spirit about it, right. Doesn't always have to feel like chores, you know? Um, So I think those are really great. And the same, a lot of the museums and galleries will have like a free day or a discounted day for families. So I, I would say, put your kids to task. Why are we doing all the research? Uh, you can make each kid sort of like the activity director for the day and say, okay, your day is next Tuesday. Line up an entire day of either free or something we can do for under X amount of dollars and t- show us a days of experience and put them to work. They know how to work the computer. They know how to do their research. They love organizing things. 
Yeah, I, I I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. My my kids love doing laundry. They love folding their laundry and putting it away in the way. I mean, I don't always agree with the way they fold it, but I just let it be because they love doing it. They love or and then they know where everything is. They're not always asking me. So, um, getting them involved, like rather than oh you don't know how to do it, so I'll just do it for you. I think that that's a uh, that's a pretty um, that's a pretty destructive way to to, to not allow children to learn those life skills. Uh, Allison, you're a parenting expert, but I do want to ask you about your concerns about families and their uh, finances. You know, when we are dealing with right now, high inflation, high interest rates, are you concerned about how families are coping right now when it comes to paying for day-to-day expenses and how that might get exacerbated in the summer? Well, I would say that parents will absorb expenses and to your point, dip into savings get themselves into credit card debt because they don't want their kids to have the ripple effect that things are tough in the family. And I don't think we need to apologize to kids. I don't think we need to fake it. It's going to create stress that comes back and erodes relationships in the family because we start to get stressed and mad and depressed and anxious and all those other byproducts. Instead, you're better to say, you know, we can't afford that this year. Some years we can, some years we can't. This year, we're not able to. And just say that in a way that is um, not scary. We don't want them to think we can't pay for the roof over our head or food. Um, But to say it in a matter of fact way that says we need to be responsible people and live within a budget. So we're choosing this over that. We're choosing this choice of activity instead of that activity because we need to be smart, wise, and responsible with our resources right now. And I think that's great modeling and there's no shame in, in saying that we're making different choices this year to be responsive to our situation. And that really speaks to the my point of view where we should always talk about money in the family because then it becomes easier to talk about it when they're adults and it just gives them a much more healthy uh, relationship with money. If you just always hush-hush about it, they don't know how to deal when they get older and they're in debt or they're dealing with their own financial problems. So uh, I think that's that's the, a very wise bit of uh, information. Allison, thank you so much uh, for joining us today and uh, getting us uh, giving us some tips on what we can do with our kids this summer that's not going to break the bank and keeping those old school ideas in mind. I think going back Back and thinking about our own childhoods and what we did is is one of the best ways to sort of resurrect some of the ideas that worked really well when we were kids. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Rubina. Thank you. That's Allison Schaefer. She's a family counselor and parenting expert talking to us today about ways we can entertain our kids without breaking the bank. There are so many ways that we can get out there, not spend a lot of money and still have a really great summer. And kids can entertain themselves too. We don't always have to make things happen for them. I think that was one of the key messages Allison was trying to send us. We are going to take a break. When we come back, we're talking cottages with $1 trillion of wealth being transferred from one generation to the next. Many Canadians are poised to inherit a cottage in the near future. But what are some of the financial pitfalls of receiving a large real estate asset this way? We will have more on that coming up. I'm Rubina ahmed and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina ahmed Canadians are currently experiencing a record wealth transfer as boomers leave their wealth to their children. A recent report by the Toronto-based research firm Strategic Insight projects that almost one 
trillion dollars in personal wealth will be transferred from one generation to the next between 2016 and 2026. So it's happening right now. And this can include real estate like family cottages. But there are a lot of financial situations to consider before taking possession of a family cottage that you may have inherited. To talk about this and more, we are joined by Meridian's Regional Vice President of Wealth, Robert Caruzzi. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rubina. How are you? I'm doing really well. I mean, someone inheriting a family cottage. I mean, it sounds like a really amazing thing to happen. I mean, you are getting an asset that then you can sell or do whatever you need to. But there are a lot of things that people may not think about when they inherit a piece of real estate like this. Can you tell us what somebody should expect uh, on day one of when they inherit a, a family cottage? Yeah, that's a great question. I think you know, when you start, when you inherit a cottage, you're right. It is, it is a memorable moment for sure. And, and a lot of memories come with that. Uh, and so uh, what generally people don't see though, until they, they take it over is the maintenance cost that comes with it. And so of course, all the work that comes with owning a cottage as well. And so all the work that you do on keeping your primary residence up to date, you're still having to do on your secondary residence, your cottage and all the maintenance cost that goes into your primary residence you're still going to have the same type of maintenance cost, if not more in some cases, on your, on your, on your family cottage. And there's also some taxation um, that people need to realize. Uh, not, 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 there's no such thing as an inher- inheritance tax in, uh, in, uh, in Canada. But when, uh, when you inherit a family cottage, explain to me how that is, is valued and how that can affect your own taxes and your own tax uh tax situation well it's taxed at the um there is a there's a capital gains tax based on the value of the date of you know for example if it's part of an estate the date of death and so at that point there's a capital gains tax based on the value at that that day versus what you know whoever initially purchased that cottage what they purchased it for and so the estate has that tax they have that piece has to then come out of the estate, which ultimately is part or could be part of the inheritance. Um, so you do get a, you know, the inheritance itself is then uh, reduced. So there is that tax consequence, but there's ways, you know, if you talk to a financial planner or a financial advisor or accountant, there's ways to help mitigate those. For example, like trusts, for example, are a great way to, to help mitigate those capital gain costs. So that really speaks to somebody who owns a cottage. Uh, they want to, uh, like you said, mitigate some of those costs for their children or, wh- or whoever's inheriting that inheriting that that piece of real estate. Uh, what can someone do who who wants to leave a financial legacy to their children and avoid them paying unnecessary tax? What can they do right now? Yeah, great question. So I think you know a few things there. So one is definitely chat with your financial planner. And, or accountant and just really understand, you know, what options are available to you. If a trust makes sense and putting the, the, the cottage in a trust today, you know, that's going to help kind of alleviate the capital gains taxes, you know, later on in years. And so what I mean by that is that the cottage isn't going to appreciate as it appreciates over the next 5, 10, 15 plus years. By putting it in a trust, you'll have that appreciation in your kids' names, for example, versus having it in yours. Now, you do have to you know, pay CRA the, the value on that property, the capital gains as they are today, but you're paying the value and whatever capital gains are earned on that property until the date you put it in the trust. And again, after it's in the trust, it'll, it'll earn that value in, uh, in your kid's name.
I think that's a really important point. I think some people misunderstand that they think putting it in a trust avoids all those taxes, but it just sort of resets it. So now that the person who is going to be named is a beneficiary, is that is that how it's in a trust? That, um, that's right. That's right, Rubini, Yeah, that they would be then uh, uh, the ones who, if they decide to sell, would be it would be uh, all those gains are only going to happen when they sell or when they leave it to their children. Uh, I think that's a that's a really important point i think a lot of people don't understand um in, before you do say say you inherit a cottage and you have no interest in taking care of this property you saw your mm-hmm. parents sort of going up there every weekend and working on it that's not the kind of life you want what should someone consider before they s- think about selling this cottage yeah rubina so i think you know there's probably that's probably that's probably going through a lot of uh cottage owners minds right now is is you know what what, what are some of the things i should consider uh, as I look into sell that, uh, sell my cottage. And so, you know, great question. One of the things, again, of course, we just talked about is capital gains and potential other tax consequences associated with selling the cottage. You know, what does that look like and what will that cost you? Uh, what are the expenses required uh, for closing costs? So, for example, your typical realtor and legal fees, but then also potential costs associated with bringing the cottage up to date. And so if it is a little dated, you know, does some renovation costs need to go into actually getting the cottage up to date to make it more sellable, if you will, or for uh, potential buyers? And then what's the impact on your long-term financial plan and how is this actually going to support, you know, your own financial goals in the short, medium, and long-term? Yeah, and uh, also that emotional part. I think sometimes, you know, along with the financial advisor, mm-hmm. uh, maybe maybe even a financial counselor, this might be some, you know, someone that you need <laughs> to bring in to, to think about the, the impact that's going to have on just your 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 feelings, your emotions about this cottage. Will you regret it uh, three, four years from now that, that you got rid of this uh, place where you made all of these, all of these memories? Um, it, what are some mistakes that some that people make, especially those who own cottages when it comes to legacy planning we've talked a little bit about how they can mitigate some of those taxes when when that cottage does change hands but what what are the sort of mistakes that families tend to make that they may not think about when it comes to their legacy planning Mm -hmm. you know the one mistake that we see often is that the conversation with family uh is left too late to determine what to do with the cottage so it's it's left for later in in the retirement years uh, of a couple or of a family versus having it early on and having it often. And so when you're, when you own a cottage, you really want to revisit that conversation. I call it the kitchen table talk, right? Bring your family together around the kitchen table and have a discussion around what your plans are for the cottage and what they would like to see. If they'd like to inherit the cottage or if they wouldn't. Again, great memories, you know, come with the cottage, but additional expenses come with that too. And it's just not for everyone. And so you want to be able to have those kitchen table talks that are open and transparent that, like you mentioned, speaks to the emotional side as much as it does about the financial side. We're speaking to the Regional Vice President of Wealth, Robert Caruzzi at Meridian. Um, a lot of people consider a cottage as an investment that they can then make money off of through short-term rentals like Airbnb and other uh, other sites that you can put your cottage on uh, to, to rent out. What are some things that someone should consider if they're going to be turning that cottage that they've inherited into uh, a short-term rental property? Yeah, those short-term rentals are a great way to kind of offset some expenses that come with the cottage, right? So you get additional income there. When you, but with 
when you're doing that, the thing to keep in mind is that that's going to actually have some additional expenses involved with it. So the cottage is getting used more. And so you have increased utility costs, maintenance costs that come with that. The other part, the other, some of the other expenses that come with it that you want to be aware of is that you do need to turn the cottage over in a sense, have somebody go in, clean it, make the bed, right? Prepare the cottage for the next renter or vacationer that comes in. And there's associated costs uh, with that too. And so those are things you want to be aware of. But, you know, again, it gives you the ability to increase, uh, increase your income to offset some of the associated expenses with your, uh, with your cottage. Yeah, and then absolutely, if somebody uh, wants to do that, they've got to have those resources available. So if you're in a really rural area or really sort of off the grid kind of area, you may not even have access to all those things you just mentioned, property managers, cleaners, uh, you know, or if a pipe breaks, is there a plumber within, within yeah. a, you know, a 20, 25 minute uh, drive that can come and, and fix, uh, fix whatever is going on. Uh, thank you so much, Robert, uh, for joining us today to talk about, you know, what people should consider if they have inherited a cottage. It's not a bad problem to have, like I mentioned at the beginning, but it's definitely uh, does have a financial component that I think a lot of people don't think about. Definitely. Thanks for having me on, Rabin. I appreciate it. Yeah, that was Robert Caruzzi. He is the Regional Vice President of Wealth at Meridian, talking about like I said, not a bad problem to have, but inheriting a cottage, but things that even if you are the one that is going to be leaving the cottage to your family, things to think about that will just make that process easier and more cost effective, meaning less taxes that you'll have to pay when that transfer does actually happen. When we come back, I'm talking about banks. Are they doing enough to help their customers who are struggling with their financial wellness. One report says, no, not at all. I'll have more on that after the break. I'm Rubina Ahmad-Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed-Huck. No matter who you talk to or where you look, people in this country are struggling financially. Cost of living has skyrocketed in the last three or four years. Young people right now are struggling even to buy a house, even rent an apartment. You could get a great job in a big city like Toronto or Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, but then you think to yourself, how am I going to afford to live in this city where the average home is selling for more than seven figures and the rent on some of these places is in the thousands of dollars? In Toronto, for example, a one-bedroom apartment is now $2,700 on average and rising. And that really depends on where that apartment is located, that condo is located. And so this has really put a lot of stress on people's financial wellness, something that I talk a lot about, how it's really important to keep our financial wellness in check so that everything else stays in check. So that means you are more productive at work when your financial wellness is in check. You are a better partner at home because you're not arguing about money or worried about money. And it's really important that the place where we do most of our money business with is aware of what their customers are going through. There is a new report out right now that says nearly two thirds of retail bank customers are struggling financially, but big banks are not doing anything to help those individuals who are feeling the pressure 
from their finances. Uh, this was done by JD Power. It's their 2023 Canada Retail Banking Advice Satisfaction Study. It found the economic pressure caused by inflation, capital markets volatility, and rising interest rates has put its mark on bank customers in Canada, with nearly 66 percent being classified as financially unhealthy. And it finds as well that those people who sought out financial advice found that their feelings about their money, their satisfaction uh, with their bank was elevated. But only 42% of those customers actually recall receiving any kind of advice from their financial institution. And even more so are saying that uh, some have found the the advice that they have received to be effective, but no one is actually reaching out to them saying, how are you doing financially? How can we help? And this is worrisome. Not that banks have to be your counselor or your therapist, but when we come, when it comes to our money, who do we deal with more than anybody? Our banks, our credit cards, our mortgages, our loans, everything is through the bank. Yes, we get our salary through our employer. We might uh, work with a financial advisor outside of our bank. So all those things, uh, you know, are might be somewhat separate. But when it comes to day to day banking, most of us are one of the big five banks or one of the big six banks, right? And so it's really important that banks really get on board when it comes to financial wellness, understanding their customers. You know, a lot of banks now have this know your customer kind of mentality. And if you are a customer and you go into a bank branch, which has happened to me, you know, they'll see your profile and they'll see all the things that you've been doing. They'll see maybe where there's some pockets where they could sell you a product, sell you a credit card, make, you know, uh, increase the, the limit on your credit card, maybe open a new bank account, maybe sell you alone. So they're always willing to do all that stuff. But what about if they look at your bank account and they think they see that you have bounced checks repeatedly for the last six months, that they see that income has not been coming into that account for the last three months, right? They can see these things because these are things that are happening in real time. Are those people behind the counter or over the phone equipped to say, hey, Is there something that we can do to help your financial wellness? Maybe there's a way that we can help you feel better about your money and not just invest your money and let it grow for 10 years so you have a great retirement, but something that's really going to give people uh, a feeling of power when it comes to their money, that they're doing something that is actually going to help them in the future and make them feel better right now. So, the study finds that there is a correlation between customers' financial state and satisfaction with their bank's advice. So if they're feeling good about their money, they're feeling good about their bank. So it's in the bank's best interest to get people feeling better about their money. They also found that they want personalized advice, not just generic advice. They save for retirement, pay down your debt, increase your mortgage payments. They want personalized advice, and that is going to increase their satisfaction as well. And what do they want to talk about? What do customers want to talk about? Investment and retirement advice that's personalized to them. Uh, they also want to talk about uh, you know, the the fact that cost of living is rising and what can they do to mitigate and maybe help them along the way, Not uh, whether it be financial literacy, so you're not putting everything on your credit card or 
all those tools that people can have that's going to help them save money. And so I found this study to be really interesting because we don't really ever think about the bank being responsible for our financial wellness. And again, I want to preface to say, I don't think the bank is responsible for your financial wellness, but if they're so willing when they look at your profile to sell you products that is going to benefit them, why don't they look at your profile and also try to give you advice that's going to benefit you which now we know, according to this J.D. Power 2023 Canada Retail Banking Advice Satisfaction Study, that the happier you are with your money, the more satisfied you are with your bank. So it's in their best interest to get you more satisfied and feeling better about the money that you have. And it can be an uncomfortable conversation. So maybe it's something that the teller would note or the person looking at your profile would note and they would have someone reach out to you later. Uh, it doesn't, you know, you last thing you want is to go to deposit a check and the person says, I've seen you haven't been getting much money in your account lately. That's, I don't think that would be the right approach, but definitely flagging those individuals that may need a little bit more personalized advice to set them on a better path towards financial wellness. Thank you so much for everybody who joined uh, me today over the last hour to listen to me about personal finance and workplace. Allison Schaefer, the parenting expert that joined us at the beginning of of the show had some great advice on what we can be doing with our children this summer that is not going to break the bank, blow your budget, however you want to put it, and still have fun. Really getting back to basics. I grew up in the 80s. So things that we did in the 80s that could still work today. And Allison, you know, we talked about a lot of different things, but I when I've talked to her in the past, she told me that kids will always find a way to play. Kids will always find a way to have fun. You just have to leave them sometimes to their own devices, really overstimulating them with screens and amusement parks and other things that usually cost a lot of money is not the way for them to really think outside of the box uh, when it comes to entertaining themselves. And the summer is a great time for them to just roam. And they say they're bored. It's not that they're bored. They're just not stimulated and they're so used to being constantly entertained that this feeling of not being entertained to them means, oh, I'm bored. No, you're not bored. You just need to think outside the box. You need to find something to do. You just need to be creative in the way that you go about your day. Camps are great. She had great advice there. City camps over private camps, definitely. And here's a bit of advice personally speaking, if you are putting your kids in any kind of camps, and this is not to do with city camps, but private camps, there's always great deals in December. I put my kids in a couple of different private camps. Uh, they came out to be almost the same cost as city camps because I registered them early and I got that early bird special. And that's why they, uh, I'm able to afford to send my kids to that camp that now would be quite expensive if you, you know, about twice the price of city camps, uh, if you were to do it last minute. So that's another thing to think about is sign yourself up to those email updates, uh, and get yourself ready for summer 2024. If you, you feel like this summer, you dropped the ball when it comes to getting your kids into all the camps they wanted. And also a really interesting conversation with Robert Caruzzi from Meridian about this wealth transfer that we're experiencing right now. And a lot of that is also real estate. Uh, inheriting a cottage is not a bad problem to have, but for many people, there are financial pitfalls they don't think about uh, when they take that cottage on. The cost of maintaining it, the, the, the just the general cost of owning a cottage, they may not be aware of it because their parents 
paid for that for so many years. So things to think about. And if you are someone who wants to leave a cottage to their children, how you can organize your finances so that when they do inherit it, they have less, uh, their, their tax implications are less. So great conversation with Robert uh, talking about that. Like I said, not, not, not a bad problem to have, but definitely someone who is inheriting a cottage is going to benefit from hearing that conversation. I want to thank you so much for joining me today on For What It's Worth. I hope you got something out of our conversation. I want to thank our technical producer, producer, James Petrovic, and we will be here next week, same time, same channel. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth.